Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Soccer Talk Podcast, the only podcast about watching soccer on TV and online. Welcome to episode 166. Coming up on this week's show, DOJ busts Fox for paying bribes to win World Cup TV rights. We share our favorite soccer doc- documentaries of all time. Liga MX debuts FIFA 20 league matches live on TV. Which was better, MLS 1.0 or MLS 3.0? Plus, we have letters from you, the listeners, in our mailbag section. I'm Christopher Harris, a.k.a. The Gaffer, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Kartik Krishnayar. Kartik, where shall we begin? Um, well, th- th- let's begin with um, what you've been watching this past week. Obviously, there's, there's no live soccer on unless you're, you're watching the Belarusian uh, Premier League, which some of those games are now actually on YouTube, so I think they're live streaming it to YouTube. But uh, other than that, that's, a, that's about it. I, I know Nicaragua is playing. Um, I think Turkestan is playing too. But obviously those are leagues that are not available on U.S. television, at least legally. Um, so, and, and we've got the, we'll, we'll get in the news section too. We've got the Bundesliga talking about uh, coming back in May. Um, but so for you and I, and probably for the rest of the world and, uh, and all the listeners, we've been watching a lot of on-demand soccer uh, what's been your on-demand um, watching from this past week? Okay, so uh, Sunderland Till I Die on Netflix. This is Football on Prime, which came out last August. I never finished the series. Comes back, and, and it's an Amazon original, right? So it was something that they, they put a big budget behind and highly advertised it. Comes back this um, this week in 4k at least on my amazon prime maybe it's been there in 4k all along and i had never seen it so i started watching it again and it was really really good uh, the the episode i like the best is is episode three uh, which with its emphasis on the bundesliga uh with Bayern and eintracht the stories of those two clubs and then also the close uh kind of close-up profiles of robbie di matteo uh, and chelsea and and his career um as a player and then as a coach culminating in the 2012 Champions League final in Munich and Juan Mata, who um, 
you know, every time Juan Mata's in a documentary or on a, some sort of Premier League world show, or I, mm-hmm. I just fall in love with the guy. He's got such an engaging personality. He's, yeah. he's one of the most engaging footballers of this era. Yeah, he's a smart, uh, an smart guy, both on and off the pitch. Guy, yeah, but, but yeah if, I think he's very bookish, which is why he comes across so well. So this is football. I, I've seen – I haven't watched any of the episodes. I've seen – I mean, a, a, not, not an ad, but I've seen it as I'm flipping through the channels on Amazon. I'm, I've seen it there. So what is it, though, Kartik? Is it, is it behind the scenes? Is it interviews? Is it footage? Is it – yeah, no, it's more interviews and footage. So it doesn't. It's not a fly in the wall thing at all. It kind of tells the story of uh, fans in Africa when, in one of the episodes. I think it might have been the first episode, uh, who are Liverpool fans and get up at uh, on godly hours there and, and gravitate to a local watering hole in, in unsafe conditions to watch Liverpool matches. It tells the story of uh, fans and clubs in, in, in Latin America and in Asia. And then uh, it has uh, this uh, episode on the Bundesliga. And, it, and there's a lot of Premier League content in it too. But it's more it's more like what I would call a, uh, a six-part magazine program, right? It's like that kind of presentation. Okay. Uh, but they're, they're long. They're not, they're not a half an hour like your traditional um, Premier League or Bundesliga magazine programs are like they I think each episode is an hour or so, right? Like um, most of these Prime uh, and Netflix documentaries. The episode three that I was speaking of in, in particular uh, shows the one thing I would uh, caution viewers is they do have the footage of the the, the horrible injury Di Matteo got in uh, uh, the European match for Chelsea that essentially you know, ruined his career, playing mm-hmm. career. Right. So they get they they have a lot of old footage. They tell the story. They went back and tracked down some of the fans who went to the Eintracht match, the infamous Eintracht match in 1992, when they uh, lost the league title on the final day to Hansa Rostock, who had already been relegated. Right. And all Eintracht had to do was get a result uh, against an, a relegated team to. Um, to win the Bundesliga title, they lose that match, and the rest is kind of history. The, the club goes down the tubes. They become a yo-yo club for two decades after having been one of the top clubs in Germany uh, in the 70s uh, and had continued success in, in cup competitions in the 80s. That's similar to Manchester United. And, and um, unlike Manchester United's relegation, when Manchester United was relegated on the final day of the 73-74 season when they lost to Man City uh, – they bounced back up uh, a year later and were in the top five in the in the then the English first division within a few years. With Eintracht, they just stayed mired in this thing, and so then they fast forward to the final in 2018 um, against Bayern Munich in, in the German Cup and go through that, and they get their first trophy in 30 years, and kind of the the and they they talk to some of the same fans. So that was really kind of neat, mm-hmm. and that's um. But it's like a magazine program. It's not a behind the scenes documentary about a club at all. Uh, they spend a lot of time with Oliver Kahn. Oh, and uh, uh, Pierluigi Colina is uh, in a lot of these episodes, and he speaks wonderful English. And now that he's not an official anymore. Kind of the coolest thing about him being in all these uh, um, in, in this series is that he's able to give his recollections of matches he officiated from kind of a standpoint of a fan or a player or a coach because you know he is a football guy, right? He, yeah. he and he had to be very guarded and very objective. So uh, that I thought was really cool because uh, we know now that guys like Howard Webb. Um, and and others uh, who have been uh, Mark Halsey and, and others who've been Premier League officials are able to kind of uh, Peter Walton's another one he comes on ESPN FC a lot able to give those sorts of reflections so I loved hearing that from the great Kalina yeah Mark Mark Clattenburg too. 
So Sunderland till I die, you did mention briefly that one. I think we'll wait until next week um, just to, to have you finish off the last couple of episodes. Uh, I did watch it um, the second season and I recommend it. Um, we'll go more in depth on that one next week. Um, some of the things I've been watching from this past week, I caught up on one documentary I surprisingly had not seen. And that was the one about Stanley Matthews on Amazon Prime. It's called Matthews. And it's such a good documentary. Um, the way it's produced is high quality, um, beginning right in South Africa, which you, which you would, for those of you who um, may not know Stanley Matthews' story as well, and actually I, I, I knew a story about it. I did not know this angle of it uh, in terms of the South African angle. And that starts off for the first about five minutes or so. And then it goes into telling the history of this which is which is arguably one of the best uh, footballers ever uh, to play for England and, and one of the best English players of all time, um, and it ends the, the documentary ends back in in South Africa too in Soweto. Really, really good documentary um, about about not just about Stanley Matthews, but just also about how uh, soccer has changed so much um, through the decades and. Uh, just uh, seeing seeing him walk through crowds and you mean with no security or just to be someone who was so close to uh, to the people, uh, highly recommend it. Fantastic documentary, one one of the best I've watched uh, on Amazon Prime in quite some time. Kartik, I finally finished uh, watching the 1982 World Cup documentary, the official film. Again, on, this one on Amazon Prime too. Um, Going into this one, I, I think I remarked on the podcast a couple of weeks ago saying that uh, this is my favorite World Cup of all time. And I think after watching this documentary, what it is, it's just it's that one match, which is the Brazil-Italy um, game, one, one of the greatest games of all time, if not the greatest game of all time. Uh, yes. As well as Italy doing well, obviously, with Paolo Rossi and just, I mean, a great team. But watching this documentary, I started to think like, well, actually, maybe that 1982 World Cup wasn't the best. Yes, it had some great moments in that World Cup. Um, England's win against France in, in the, that opening game of that group. Um, that was remarkable. But um, the more I watched this documentary, the final was pretty boring. Um, there was more footage of the France-Germany penalty kick uh contest in the semi-final than there was of, of the actual brazil italy game and the way that it was edited was um it it, it chopped off the build-up play in that brazil italy game so you missed kind of the the engaging play so for me i think I, what i'm going to do is go back and and find a tape of brazil against italy from 1982 and watch the whole game from start to finish and, and, and i would advise actually also because I, I did it you know i wonder i want to I did it in the NASL office one day, I want to say in 2011. I watched the entire 120 minutes of Germany. It was one of the days during the offseason, so it wasn't that I was slacking on the job. Um, The 120 minutes of Germany, France, and didn't watch the penalties. Hmm. And it it was available somewhere at the time. It may have been FIFA TV, although I don't know that they did that in those days. But, yeah, even in that match, they kind of edited out a lot of the um, the the, the build-up play, and they went right to penalty kicks. And this, is, this isn't this uh, is 
a shot at that, that FIFA docu- uh, documentary or retrospective that was made in 83, right after the 82 World Cup. It's a shot at everything. I have noticed this time and again when there are cup finals or, or one-off uh, elimination matches that end in penalty kicks. There seems to be, with the broadcast highlights, the condensed highlights, always some sort of emphasis on showing every single spot kick, but not... Um, not everything else. And in, in fact, in, in This Is Football, um, they did show the entire penalty shootout, and the one I was mentioning just now, of Chelsea, Bayern Munich. Uh, however, I will also mention they had a, uh, an analyst on, a uh, British analyst, I can't forget remember his name, uh, who basically charted the probability of, of goals scored in each, in, in, uh, uh, for Bayern and Chelsea in that match and went through m- most of those chances. So they, they, it's, they did do that as yeah. well. Um, and he said, look, uh, the probability was Bayern expected goals would be like 3.5, Chelsea 0.2. But this is the wonderful thing about football. It ended up being 1-1 and they go, go to, to uh, Penn's. Um, yeah, I, but that that really annoys me about yeah, uh, these documentaries. I, I've I've noticed that though too. Just just during during a regular Premier League season, where I mean something may happen, some a beautiful pass, and which le- led to the goal. And to me, oftentimes the pass was greater than the goal itself. The pass was just you mean just insightful, just something that. Uh, just almost like magic in terms of just um, you mean know, with a, lo- uh, you know, a long range pass or an inch perfect pass and and then the the striker with relatively easy uh, chance to to knock it in into the back of the net and then during the actual clip of that the replay of that there you mean know, you just see a portion of that pass you don't see the full pass for for all the beauty of it and it's not until halftime or post match where you might have say Robbie Musto that says hey let's go back and take a look at that look at that pass and and then you see the the pure beauty of that i guess part of that too is like live uh production television with just uh you mean not a lot of time and everything's been done on the fly so but yeah i've noticed that too that that always uh, irks me um when we missed out on that now, Kartik, you've been going back into time, back in time to watch a lot of games uh, from the past. And uh, which ones stand out from you that you've been watching uh, this past week? Yeah, so I watched uh, the 99 League Cup final. These are all games I had on DVD for whatever random reason. League Cup final between Spurs and Leicester. And uh, unfortunately, I'd forgotten that Spurs won because of a Casey Keller howler at the end of the match at Wembley. Uh, Keller, of course, would play for Spurs later uh, in his career. Uh, speaking of the U.S., uh, Two U.S.-Germany games from 1999 I watched. Uh, the U.S. Germany's, uh, U.S. versus Germany 3-0 U.S. friendly win in uh, February of 1999 in Jacksonville. Unbelievable performance for the U.S. And that was the game that I think psychologically allowed us to put the 98 World Cup behind us. I do have to mention, though, um, part of the reason the U.S. had such ease in that game is in theory the fact that the German players used it as a holiday and went in beached in your your neck of the woods now, Chris, on St. Augustine Beach and on uh, Ponte Vedra and Jacksonville beaches and were not uh, mentally prepared to uh, to play this match. It was during uh, um, the winter break in the Bundesliga, so it was all an all-Bundesliga team of German players. I don't recall if they had any players at the time playing in Italy or England, but if they did, those guys weren't on uh, on that squad. It was all it was a completely Bundesliga uh, team. 
And that's also why the U.S. Uh, had its full allotment of players, because at the time, uh, other than uh, the, the guys who were in the Premier League, and I think in 99, it would have just been Brad Friedel, right? I'm trying to think who else it might have been um, in 99. Uh, oh, Harks was at Nottingham Forest. He wasn't in that game. But um, the, the, the rest were all uh, MLS or Bundesliga players. So... Um, the three U.S. goal scorers, ironically enough, all played in the Bundesliga, which I think is kind of the attraction of that match, that uh, that the U.S. beat Germany with three German-based players scoring the goals, Yvonne Karofsky, Claudio Reyna, and Tony Sané. Later that year, the U.S. played Germany in the Confederations Cup in, uh, in Guadalajara, Mexico, and beat them 2-0. Really comprehensive um, uh, win for the U.S., a uh, very easy win. This actually foretold the problems Germany would have in Euro 2000, where they were awful. They finished last in their group. Uh, they lost to England, actually, and, that, and England didn't get out of the group either, right? They finished third. But uh, the the German performances in Euro 2000 and Euro 2004, we so often forget because we kind of obsess about how great they they were in World Cups until the most recent World Cup, always getting to the quarterfinals, always seeming to be there in the big competitions. But they're not; they haven't always been there in the Euros. And this, uh, these two games in '99 kind of foretold the problem they were going to have uh, the next few years. Uh, France Brazil 2006 in the in the World Cup. This was a match that uh, FIFA TV restreamed this week. I had forgotten. I, I don't want to say I'd forgotten because I think a few years ago I may have even on this show or the forerunner of this show, Chris, consistently said he was the most impactful player in world football in terms of tactics uh, other than Xavi on Barcelona. But Claude McAuley, just I, I, you know, yeah. his performance of that game blew me away. Uh, it's just always in the right place, always so graceful in how he wins the ball. Uh, his technical skill was so good. Um, he changed how that that number six position is played, right? You used to have to have a destroyer that would take people's legs out. And, and he wasn't that at all. Um, Zizou was brilliant. And I would also have to say Lillian Thuram at the end of his career was still such a gracefully brilliant player. Um, I think as we move pa- uh, move with some perspective with history, Chris, mm-hmm. and we think about France, we realize that maybe they are the preeminent footballing nation over the course of the last uh, quarter century. We've talked so much about Spain and Brazil and Argentina uh, and Germany, but there seems to be when now I think about it, even when they don't perform well at the big tournaments, a greater production line of elite French players than, and, and it crosses generations than any sort of conveyor belt in any other country. I mean, obviously Brazil would be the closest competition there, but um, this just gave me another appreciation for, for France and how, how good they were. And then obviously um, Vieira and Henri were still on the team. Then Henri got the goal. Uh, 2007 Man City, Man United. So, I watched this game on DVD. I have a, a DVD of the old of Fox Soccer Channel's coverage of the game, uh, or the international feed. I then try and search on YouTube for a decent clip to post, and there are no decent clips on YouTube. <laughs> it's just right. like all these gra- this grainy stuff. Um, I and I also, by the way, watched the Win documentary about uh, about New York City FC, and that um, that was excellent. And the, the biggest reason I'd recommend that documentary, one, it's not the classic MLS propaganda that you get from um, from MLS documentaries like the LAFC documentary we've talked about and other things MLS itself produces. It's a real fly on the wall, behind the scenes look that also engages their fans in the buildup, 
to, to the first season and through the first season. I think the most interesting thing about it, Chris, is you get a much more, uh, much deeper approach, uh, analysis of what happened in the Frank Lampard situation, uh, them signing him or city football group, signing him, him going to Manchester city, him scoring for Manchester city. Uh, there's uh, they, they, they document the meeting where Soriano tells Claudio Reyna, Hey, he's staying here. And, and, and we know this is very difficult for you. They document the meeting between Jason Christ, Claudio Reyna and Lampard after he made the decision to stay at Manchester City or after the decision was made for the rest of the season. They show the fan reaction. They show people calling and canceling their season tickets hmm. because Lampard was going to stay in Manchester and not be in in, um, in New York until the summer. Uh, so they were pretty honest about all that stuff. The other thing I liked about it is when they showed the players that they had signed, they listed their salary. So part of it was you saw the, 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 the difference in salary between your average American player, including Shakiri Shelton, who is uh, featured prominently in the documentary and is now playing in the Bundesliga, has really kind of made it big. He's at Paderborn. Um, versus, he was making 60000 at the time versus the, the DPs via Lampard and then also, um, obviously, a mixed discarude who was on a high salary. So th- it was really neat, and, and mm. it was a documentary that I, that I enjoyed. I thought it was going to be just, oh, whatever, I, I don't really – care it's another mls documentary that will be uh that will be propaganda it was actually quite good and it showed some of the struggles the team had with their fans initially uh etc but it was uh well done yeah and that one's on curiosity stream uh Kartik actually wrote a a really good article about curiosity stream which is a, a streaming documentary uh platform uh for our sister website which is uh, comparestreaming.com so check that out when you get a chance and it goes into more detail about all the coverage uh, that they have soccer and and a whole lot more. All right, Kartik, let's move on to uh, TV streaming news. Yeah, in the midst of uh, this shutdown, we got the huge surprise this week that federal prosecutors in Brooklyn unveiled new charges in the FIFA corruption probe, including two against former Fox marketing executives. Prosecutors say their involvement helped them obtain confidential bidding info for US, the U.S. rights of the 2018 and 2022 World Cups, which Fox won. And of course, because of the Cole Cutter uh, winter controversy that rolled over, they were given somehow um, free a freebie or not a freebie but you know the the add-on of 2026 without a competitive bidding process exactly um according to dog's press release two execs charged were responsible for developing fox broadcast business in latin america but they also obtained confidential bidding information that helped fox acquire the u.s rights to broadcast the 2018 and 2022 world cup uh tournaments uh could espn or 2dna have a legal case against fox regarding the rights to a world cup Per Sports Illustrated legal expert Michael McCann, and this is a quote, uh, the awarding of TV contracts in a fraudulent bidding process means that a group of networks lost out on bids due to bribes and kickbacks. Attorneys for ESPN and other losing bidders likely read Monday's indictment with interest. It's not inconceivable they could weigh potential legal action over losing bids in a corrupted process. While the statutes of limitation for taking action may have already expired, remember this bidding took place in 2011, um, and uh, um, uh, net, uh, and, and while the bidding, process itself might have compelled right. bidding networks to contractually forego uh, possible legal claims, it's within the realm of possibility that losing networks might explore the possibility of suing FIFA and related parties for fraud. They might even explore a case against Fox on a, th- th- a theory of vicious, vicarious liability, namely 
responsibility for wrongful acts by Lopez and Martinez, those are two individuals that were indicted, uh, that benefited Fox. So this is just a fascinating development. And um, I also found it kind of ironic, uh, Chris, before I throw it over to you, that uh, Grant Wall, who worked for Fox for a number of years, is not there anymore, was kind of beating the drums about this louder than anyone on the Internet, yeah. on Twitter. Like, Boy, this is fraudulent. This is terrible. Um, and I've written an article recently for, for our site uh, about Grant Wall being seemingly more independent and objective since he left Fox. This is yet another example. Yeah, that, that article was talking about like how the best thing for Grant Wall was leaving Fox because he's now become very vocal about not not just Fox, but but also, uh, more importantly, U.S. soccer and, and uh, kind of the, the steps or the the mistakes that they keep on making and um, being a vocal opponent to them. While he was at Fox, he was very, um, very corporate, very let's, let's stick to kind of Fox's agenda and um, not say anything negative on Fox television about U.S. soccer. So, yeah, this is this is a big story, Kartik. Um, the thing the thing that I want to focus in on is the question about could ESPN or Tuduene have a legal case uh, against Fox regarding the rights to the World Cup? And, I mean, what's left? So you got 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Uh, they'll be played in the winter. That's going to be played what from I think Thanksgiving roughly through till uh, December. So it's going to be played at a time conceivably, unless things change uh, during NFL games and you know busy uh, time of the sporting calendar usually. So 2022 World Cup, I don't think that's going to be a big one for anyone in terms of um, TV ratings. And uh, obviously, 2018's already happened. Um, the 2026 um, World Cup was handed to Fox Sports, uh, where they were able to acquire the rights to that uh, at a sum. But it's uh, in a bidding process that there was no other bidders. It was only Fox. Fox came in and said, okay, we're willing to pay X amount of dollars for the 2026 World Cup. So I'm not sure even with the 2026 World Cup, if an ESPN or Tudo NA would have a legal case for that one. It is connected, but it, it, it wasn't. Um, th- th- this w- was was later. My my thing thinking about this is that I don't think ESPN would be interested in doing any uh, legal case against Fox or FIFA. Um, I mean, Fox and ESPN have a pretty close relationship. Um, they've worked together in the past quite a few times on some collaborations. Um, but to do NA, to do NA, obviously the, the Spanish language rights for the World Cup are with uh, Telemundo and to do NA, formerly Univision Deportes. Um, are not on the best speaking terms or on the best business terms with uh, Telemundo. And Univision uh, Deportes, now to Duene, really were dealt a huge blow by losing the rights to the World Cup. I can see possibly on the Spanish language side, uh, the lawyers at to Duene at least discussing or thinking very, very deeply about this one, whether there is a case for them to go in and try to acquire... Uh, try to get those rights back uh, through a legal case. Imagine 2022 World Cup if you had Mexico playing in that World Cup and uh, performing at a high level, what the TV ratings would be for that, even if it is during the winter, during, you mean, a, a busy sporting uh, time of the year in, in terms of the calendar. That That's my take on this one. But but yeah, a huge story that came out uh, this week. Now, Kartik, uh, speaking of uh, Tudu NA, they've announced that they're going to be showing, beginning Friday, they're going to be showing live 
FIFA video games on Tudo NA. Um, so what what it is is they've take they've looked at the Clausura uh, season in Liga Max and uh, the games that would we'll be playing, and they've gone ahead and set up a league that is going to be uh, live streamed on television in Spanish. So unfortunately, there's no English language uh, broadcast of these games. But what they're going to have is their Tudo NA commentators, in addition to Liga MX um, players in the broadcast booth commentating on the game. So you'll have, you know, not this weekend, but you'll have you know, Club America against Chivas. You'll have uh, Toluca against Pumas. I mean, all, all these great uh, Mexican teams playing it out live on television, going through the entire season. I think it's, it's going to be 17 uh, match days. Um, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of the days are going to be back-to-back to games. You might have two or three games back-to-back. This will be an interesting experiment because I, I think in many ways, this is one thing that we're missing out on on English language television. So far, no, but n- none of the English language sports proga- broadcasters have shown any live FIFA games on television. And I think it's worth trying. I, I know that um, Rocket League, the USL is doing, and they're having some of those games on ESPN2, I believe it is. Uh, as well as ESPN three, um, but Rocket League is not soccer. FIFA yeah. twenty. I'd, I'd like to see it. Let's let's, let's try it. Let's see how it happen. I know MLS has got a Twitch channel, but again, that's not on television. But uh, anyway, hats off to Liga MX. Uh, they're calling it E Liga MX um, and uh, Tudo NA for making this happen. Um, I'm looking forward to at least watching it and and seeing what it's like and seeing uh, if it's well produced or not. Meanwhile, Kartik, uh, it sounds like uh, the Bundesliga will be back in action in May, playing games behind closed doors. Uh, they don't expect to ha- have any games with fans in the stadium until probably early next year. But they are looking to finish off the season. Uh, not a lot of game, game weeks to go, but uh, starting up in May, behind closed doors. What's your reaction on, the, on that one? Um, I'm a little stunned. I mean, I, I think... Germany has done a better job, and I had a long conversation about this with uh, our friend Nick Gieber the other day uh, about the Bundesliga starting when uh, we're, we're both under the impression Serie A and La Liga may never play again this season, right? Uh, seasons may just be done, and, and uh, the thought is that you maybe have a one-off playoff between Lazio and, and Juventus for the title and Barcelona and Real Madrid in those respective leagues, that this has happened. Now, Germany has done a much better job of containing the virus, and they have a much lower mortality rate once people contract the virus. So they um, they are in better shape than Italy or Spain and the United Kingdom, where I mean I think everybody knows it's it's there's probably more high profile cases in the United Kingdom than anywhere else, including the Prime Minister. This having been said, once you've contained the virus, there is a fear that you, <laughs> if you if you lessen the, uh, the the restrictions on con- on, on um, social contact, then uh, the thing might explode again. So these matches will be behind closed doors, but you have uh, 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 20 players on each side, right? That'll dress. Mm-hmm. You have referees, you have staff, you have coaches, you have operations staff, you have uh, groundskeepers, you have all these things to where you're going to have, I don't know, 150, 200 people. Right, TV uh, crews. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, TV crews. Yeah, thank you. Right, because that's the reason they're doing this. So I I think they're running a a horrible risk. Now, 
we know the reason it's being done is the Bundesliga needs to finish the season to satisfy its television partners. We also know that there are a number of clubs in that league or in that in the in the league structure beyond Bundesliga one that are teetering on the brink because of the ownership model in Germany being so much different than the rest of the world and, and something I embrace. I embrace the German model. But to me this is really risky. Yeah, it's um yeah, the crazy thing though, Kartik, if if this was the Premier League that had announced this, I'm sure there'd be a ton of people on Twitter, I mean, kind of outraged, saying that this is ridiculous. Uh, because it's the Bundesliga, I'm not seeing as much uh, complaints about it, for whatever the case is. But it, we're in a situation where we, I mean, I mean, a lot of these leagues have to figure out a way to finish off the the season. So whether they just end it as is. Uh, and then fear the the, the uh, implications in terms of what's going to happen with UEFA saying, okay, well, if you do that, then you're not going to be in the Champions League. So, so the, t- the 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 leagues are put into a situation where they have to figure out a way to finish off the season um, in order to fulfill the contractual obligations and in order to satisfy UEFA for the Champions League and and Europa League. So then you put into a situation where you have to play these games. I'm okay with it as long as they can guarantee the health and safety of everyone involved in this. So from a TV spectacle, and we we saw this in the, the in the first couple of weeks in March, where some of the games were played behind closed doors in Europa League and, and other leagues. Uh, the TV spectacle is is awful. It, it looks it looks terrible. It looks like it's a behind closed doors friendly being played and and the level of football is good it just it just there's no atmosphere so it's i don't think a lot of fans are going to be that excited about watching these games personally speaking but if they, if they can guarantee the health and safety of everyone and and how can they guarantee that i guess with testing and and just i mean the amount of energy and resources needed to 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 make that happen which then you're taking that away from maybe hospitals or other resources that desperately need that. I don't know. It just, um, it's an awful situation to be in. Um, but other than just, I mean, that, that, that's pretty much the only way they can go about it unless they say, okay, we'll just pull the plug and we're not going to play these games at the end of the season and, and uh, to hell with it type of thing. Um, it's a tough situation to be in. And for the leagues, the clubs, the players, everyone involved, and and the TV crews, production, all of the the people that work on this, um, it's it's difficult. Um, I, I guess it's up to the leagues. If the leagues are fully confident that they can do it without getting anyone sick um, or, or spreading the disease, then then do it and get it over and done with. Iconic, uh, moving on in the TV news uh, section. And this is really not TV uh, or streaming news per se, but we want to go through just some of our recommendations of some of the best soccer films and documentaries that we've watched. And this is in no specific order at all. But as we go through, just kind of a quick uh, description of some of these. So, Kartik, I'll have you start off with, with uh, one, of, one of your favorites. Yeah, The Four-Year Plan, uh, which is about... Queens Park Rangers after the takeover by Bernie Ecclestone, uh, Flavio Bertori, and that uh, that group of uh, individual owners in 2007 uh, is a is a great great documentary. They had a four year plan to get to the Premier League, and they made it. But it's a it's a classic fly in the wall documentary that shows just kind of the uh, the the the, the, the the competing interests at the club, the t- tensions between manager and players, manager and owners, 
agents and and managers and and players and really kind of walks you through (coughs) excuse me the entire process and the craziness of that club because at the time the club was sacking managers left and right they were paying a lot of money to get players uh in the door and even at the end of the documentary there's some uncertainty because they have been promoted to the premier league but they were awaiting a points deduction uh, 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 from the fa because they had registered alejandro farlon uh, they, they, there was a claims that he was a third party owned player. And I, I think a lot of people remember that controversy. So the documentary ends with the FA docking them, um, uh, 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 not docking them points, but, but essentially fining them. Right. Mm-hmm. And they get promoted anyway. And that's how the documentary ends. But you see the succession of managers who could not work with ownership. They finally decide, okay, we need to get an established manager instead of running through, uh, uh, the, the, the the, the Paulo Sousa's, these young managers of the world, and the Jim McGilton's, who obviously was a good manager, but uh, it didn't work out there, etc. So they go and get Neil Warnock from Crystal Palace. They have to pay Crystal Palace for it, and it's working out beautifully at first, but then um, the, the, the old tension arises, uh, but Warnock gets them promoted in the end. So just really interesting documentary. I think maybe the first um, documentary that I... Uh, that, that I really liked in terms of flying the wall documentaries. This was made in 2012. So it, it's now very dated, but it gives you a look at uh, the football league in the late uh, latter part of the decade of, of the 2000s and uh, how difficult it was, even if you threw money at things to get a team promoted. If there was no consistency, there was no style, there was no uh, it, just club culture. And there wasn't, there wasn't a club culture there at all. I should add too that the, the, a lot of these recommendations too, uh, or some of the re- recommendations are from our listeners and followers uh, on Twitter too. So, uh, and, and as, in addition to Kartik and I adding our uh, recommendations in here. Next up is Victory, which is also known as Escape to Victory in some countries. And this is a film, uh, if you haven't seen it before, definitely rent it or stream it check it out uh it stars i mean it's it's a fictional story about world war ii and about uh uh, american pow and british pow um soldiers uh in a in a uh, a camp and uh there's you know nazi german uh officers and they decide to go ahead and, and play a soccer game uh the funny thing is, is it stars an incredible cast of people, too. Everyone from Sylvester Stallone to Michael Caine, Bobby Moore, uh, Osvaldo Ardiles, and I think John Wark. I think they, they took a, a bunch of the players from Ipswich Town. Yes. I think Russell Osmond's in there. So you'll see a bunch of <laughs> Ipswich Town um, footballers in the in the British camp here. But um, and then, of course, how could I forget Pele uh, is in this one too? It's it's really actually not the best film ever made, but it's one of the, the better soccer films. Um, there aren't a lot of very good soccer films per se. Documentaries, yes, films uh, not so much. But uh, I enjoyed that one. That, that, that's an all time classic for me. Uh, Sunderland Till I Die. Need I say anything more about this one? Uh, the first season, one of the best documentaries available on Netflix. Season two, we'll get into next week, but to me, it's it's worth watching. Uh, the next one is a personal favorite of mine. I think yours too, Kartik. The, yeah. Dam- the Damned United. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You and I watched uh, that movie together for the first time, and we walk out with our friend Rami Sophie, and I, w- I was complaining about all the factual errors because I knew so much about Brian Club's career. Yeah. Um, 
but then I ended up being one of the first people probably to buy the DVD when it came out. I own it on digital now uh, via via Prime, uh, buy, buying a video, uh, and have watched it probably two dozen times because it, the filmography is that good, and it's still a great story regardless of whether they kind of uh, uh, sandbagged the reputations of Billy Bremner, who had passed by that time, and Johnny Giles, who was very much still alive at the time, uh, and Dave Mackay uh, and others uh, – to tell the story it's so it 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 does get you in in the kind of intense personal side of brian clough and his relationship with uh peter taylor it does capture that properly um some of the factual errors are that uh, johnny giles was the person recommended by don revy to be uh the manager of leeds when he left uh to take the england job but Giles wasn't actually one of the players who undermined Clough. Bremner was. That that was accurate. But Giles actually it was on record saying, hey, I mean, I don't think 44 days is enough time for any manager. I would have given him till Christmas, basically. Um, and then the Dave Mackay um, faux pas is that Mackay uh, does become the manager of Derby. They do... Uh, win, uh, they do win the league uh, under Mackay, right? If, I'm, if I remember correctly, yep. or, or the FA Cup, they won the league. But there were a couple managers between him uh, and, and Clough, and Mackay, who recently passed away a few years ago, uh, said, I never would have sandbagged him like that. I wasn't an active player anymore. The, the movie had kind of represented him as an active player. Uh, I had already retired. I was uh, <laughs> getting into management. Clough had gone to Brighton, and I took the job after that and uh and and uh so there were some historical inaccuracies in there and i think anyone who knows english football in the 70s will will pick up on those but it was still a fantastic movie and michael sheen captured clough so perfectly i mean this was at a moment this moment this film was released uh at a time when uh michael sheen had just come off of playing tony blair in in multiple films and had just captured blair and had played david frost in a great film frost nixon and he kind of played frost in his own way he didn't really resemble frost but he was still spectacular in that film uh, opposite frank langella who was nixon and and then this movie came out like three months after uh, frost nixon it, it, it was his moment uh, he's a great uh actor on on uh on uh, in, in in film and in in plays on broadway etc but this was kind of his moment and i as good as he was as blair i think he may have even been better as clough Oh, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. And and for listeners who may not have seen the film yet, I would thoroughly recommend the book, too, because the book by David Peace, The Damned United, uh, to me, was even better than the film and uh, gets deeper into the character of, well, into kind of the the mindset of Brian Clough. Uh, Just a spectacular book. Speaking of great books, Fever Pitch, uh, the Nick Hornby classic, probably... The, probably the greatest uh, book about soccer ever written. Um, this was turned into a movie in 1997 starring Colin Firth. The movie itself is not... I mean, the book is a million times better than the movie. The movie's not the greatest. Uh, it's, it's, it's well worth watching if you can find it. Um, it's nothing to do with the Fever Pitch uh, baseball movie, which was kind of semi-based on, on Nick Hornby's book. But um, Fever Pitch, the film, if you can find it, check it out. It's, it's worth watching. In context, because we have so many uh, films still left on our list, we'll just go for a few more, and then we'll continue uh, the list uh, next time. But next up, uh, The Two Escobars. Uh, This was a 30 for 30 uh, documentary uh, done by ESPN that talks about the intertwining stories of Pablo Escobar, um, 
I mean, the drug uh, cartel leader from uh, Colombia, and then Andres uh, Escobar, the uh, footballer for Colombia, who unfortunately scored an own goal in the 1994 World Cup uh, between the United States and Colombia, a devastating uh, goal for Colombia and a huge goal to the benefit of the United States. Really, it's a mind-blowing film to watch. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if you, if you can add anything more to it than, than I can. Yeah, I, I thought that uh, The Two Escobars was just – the filmography was so good. And it, it came out right before the 2010 World Cup. So it was, it was ESPN by design put it out to kind of jump into World Cup 2010 coverage and it did the job. I mean so many people were – so many casual people, casual sports fans I know watched – not casual sports fans, sorry, intense sports fans but not into soccer – watched a film and then decided they wanted to watch the World Cup even though it was a film about uh, Pablo Escobar and the drug um, uh, the, 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 uh, drug kingpins and everything of the 1980s and early 1990s and its connection to Colombian football. But uh, it is worth noting also, uh, for those who don't know, there was a moment in time when the Colombian league uh, was more awash with cash than the other leagues in South America mm-hmm. and uh, were, were storming through Copa Libertadores, and etc. after being a football backwater. Colombia uh, developed – Later, in kind, in terms of its uh, its football infrastructure, than uh, the countries in the southern half of South America, the southern cone, as well as uh, uh, actually probably even uh, some countries in, in the north of uh, uh, north of South America. So, uh, it, it was really kind of a fascinating movie, and I highly recommend it. All right, two more content to go before we move on to the next segment, and that is the next. Next up is I think you saw this with me, right? In in the, yeah. the movie a premiere. Uh, th- this movie is called uh, Pilada, and what they did was uh, they went on a tour throughout the United States, showing at uh, independent movie theaters, and oftentimes when they premiered the film in that different region, they'd have the um, the director and producer. Uh, in the movie theater to answer questions. And this is one that I remember for South Florida, it was a big deal because we had kind of all these people from the soccer world in South Florida. So you had, I don't know, Thomas Rongan, Ray Hudson, Jeff Resnack, uh, many, many others who came out to watch this movie. And it was a good way way for a lot of us to catch up because it had been years that we hadn't seen each other because, you mean losing the Miami Fusion with the MLS and, and uh, the strikers kind of up and down. There wasn't as much of a community, but this brought people together. And it, it's a beautiful film. It's a film of different soccer stories from around the world. Um, I mean, from, from, I think, Brazil to Africa. Um, just showing how the universal language of soccer exists and, and how beautiful the game is. And the cinematography t- photography in this one is beautiful. The stories, um, not as memorable. I, I can't remember a lot of the stories. I don't, I don't know, you, but you can't take But I remember walking away from this one uh, having a really feel-good feeling about the beautiful game of soccer. Yeah, it was quite a night for all of us because we all were able to congregate back together. Jeff Rusnak put, put it together. It was pretty amazing. The thing that, um, I, that stands out for me was that we had Gwendolyn Oxel and the, the, the producer there and she answered questions and, and there was this portion on Iran that was really, really interesting from a woman's perspective. The other uh, two things that stood out from that night actually were Ray Hudson reading poetry yeah. about Raquel May and Messi that he had written before um, 
b- before we went into the theater. And then um, it happened to be the night. Remember, we're all in South Florida where this we had this gathering in Hollywood uh, that LeBron James signed with the Miami Heat, which was a, a surprise to a lot of people. And so uh, we get out of the theater. Everyone turns their phone back on and it's, oh, my goodness, we have this alert. LeBron or text message from somebody, LeBron signed with the Miami Heat. So it was it, it was a really memorable night. And it was in the middle was it in the middle of the 2010 World Cup or was it right before? I'm trying to remember. Maybe it was, I, I think it was before. Yeah, it was right before. So it was around the same time that two Escobars had, had come out uh, on ESPN. So it was really kind of uh, – I, I have really fond memories of that summer of 2010. I mean there was a lot uh, of, of kind of good feeling in, in, in the soccer world, at least in South Florida that summer with a World Cup going on with everybody kind of – congregating together it was it was the period of time using that world cup as a springboard we launched nasl and we 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 relaunched the four Lauderdale strikers there was just a ton that happened that summer uh us getting together for that movie for pilata was a big part of it that was actually what started that's that summer of soccer for us yeah and for those who are interested too so pilata's uh, p-e-l-a-d-a so check that out last but not least kartik once in a lifetime the extraordinary story of the new york cosmos uh, this was a, a 2006 film that came out and uh as far as american soccer documentaries it has to be i mean the best if not one of the best just a remarkable um storytelling of the nasl and uh, the highs and lows of that league and just uh, how amazing it was to think back to you mean the 1970s where you had all of the I mean, all the major stars from around the world uh playing in North America, in the United States, imagine if that had happened. If that happened today, you'd have the likes of Messi, Ronaldo. Uh, you mean you, you name it coming from around the world? Uh, you mean Haaland coming to play in the United States? How big of a deal that would be for the United States? And and this is a, a documentary that really celebrates that and, and tells that story in in a lot of detail. I I always enjoy watching this one. I've, I've watched it a few times. What about you, what about you, Kartik? Yeah, I've I've actually saw it in the movie theater three times when it was out in the theaters in the summer of 2006. So that's how much I liked it. Uh, one, the first time, the day I actually had to go and there was a line to get in was the, was the first time I went, which was the morning of uh, the Liverpool Crystal Palace. Uh, sorry, Liverpool Chelsea. A church community shield match in 2006 immediately after went to uh to watch the film uh and, and watch it for the first time and then watched it two more times before it rotated out of the movie theaters here it was riveting it was uh it, it recreated a lot of the nostalgia for the nasl i mean it was really the trigger on so much retrospective goodwill and good feeling about the nasl the nasl had been buried in the 96 to 2006 time period as a failure, as a reason the U.S. had fallen behind in soccer, MLS now uh, has come uh, to rescue us type of thing. And I think it changed a lot of people's thinking about that period. And you don't label something a failure because it fails at the end when there were several good years before that. And I think uh, that uh, that film did a lot to change people's attitudes. It also just showed how colorful football was in the 1970s and this is something that you get from uh from the documentaries about english football in that period and the documentaries about german football in that period and and, and quite honestly even from the damned united we talked about that film it's kind of in the same period a little earlier a few years earlier than the bulk of uh, uh once in a lifetime the other thing i think it really did is 
it established the um, how, how do I put this the at the time when MLS MLS would go into markets, they would even if there was a long soccer history in those markets, they would they would rip out the history and they would call the team something else. And uh, they tried to do it in Seattle, and the fans protested, and they ended up going with uh, the Sounders. I think it restored a lot of the nostalgia and restored a lot of the feeling that we need to have continuity between that era and this era. So then suddenly. The Sounders, the Timbers, the Whitecaps get into MLS. They keep their names. We see the Tampa Bay Rowdies and Fort Lauderdale Strikers come back. We see other attempts. There had been talk of bringing the Detroit Express and Washington Dips, uh, Diplomats and uh, LA uh, Aztecs back. Mm-hmm. So there, there became this – and the Cosmos, obviously. There became this, this kind of understanding that, okay, we don't need to hit the reset button in every market and make something fresh and new. Let's grab – that nostalgia. Let's let's make it seem like uh, there's a continuity. Now, there's some dishonesty in it, not in the film, but in that continuity. San Jose Earthquakes now, this version of the Earthquakes and MLS trying to uh, kind of embellish their history and say where, you know, they say, they say you know, Quakes 74 everywhere. No, it's not the same club. But right. still, um, I think it changed a lot of attitudes in American soccer, that film. Yeah, that's the thing, though, Kantik. You and I have experienced this in, in, our, in different ways and sometimes to get together. But what, what happens oftentimes when I have a conversation with somebody about soccer in the United States and just a stranger or someone I run into by accident, the co- the topic comes up about the NASL. And this happened, we met up for lunch, what, in early March, just a couple of weeks before all hell broke loose with, with COVID-19. But we had lunch to catch up. And um, the guy was asking us, hey, like, what business are you in? We said we're in the soccer business. And he, he was from Chicago. And he started talking to us about the Chicago Sting and about them playing these games and how memorable it was. And I think he asked, like, does does Chicago still have a team? Like, you mean, is who what what is the team? And we talked about the team at Bridgeview and the, the Chicago Fire, and they're starting to come back a little bit now. They're going to be playing games at Soldier Field. Isn't that good news? But the context of that story was all focused on NASL, the memories of of that league, and just the crystal clear memories of just the celebration of how good the, those years were. And that happens all the time when I run into, into people and start talking about soccer. It's oftentimes from the context of NESL, not Major League Soccer. And, and it, it is remarkable. When, and and it's, this documentary, if you haven't seen it, watch it. It, it is uh, great history, but also um, I, I think it, it also gives us a better appreciation for what we have today, where we have a strong league, but also reflects back on how good things were back then too, in terms of in the history, rather than them being uh, labeled as, as like you said, as, as a failure. It wasn't a failure. The, the end was a failure, yes, but um, during the height of it, it was incredible. Listen to Mailbag, we've got a few uh, comments from our listeners. Uh, first up is Leo. Leo says, thanks for the interesting discussions, even in the absence of football. Only one quick fix. The Nicaraguan League is playing, even with people in the stadiums. And uh, the Russian League showed the classic Spartak uh, Seska game from a video game on the Federal Match TV. And I think that's in, in answer to my question, I think, last week, talking about how come there's no live FIFA games um, being played? I mean, FIFA, the video game, being played on television. So I guess in Russia, they, they did it, did that. 
Uh, Raymond Orozco says, do you think because of the financial problems that are occurring within league football in Europe right now, it may accelerate potential of Super League, particularly in Europe? I, th- I think, Kartik, I think all gloves are off at this point. I mean, yeah. everything could change. Um, once soccer gets back to normal, whatever normal is, um, I think all gloves are off. Anything could happen. Clubs could be going out of business. Uh, leagues could be really hurt. The transfer market could be decimated. If there ever was a time for somebody to come together to figure out a plan to give clubs a financial boost with a Super League, this this could be the time. Alan says, I have just finished watching the second season of Sunderland Till I Die, and I really enjoyed it. The word that I thought of most while watching the episodes was passion. The passion from the supporters was great to see, especially the youngsters. It reminded me of when I started going to games in the late 60s, hoping that your team would win was everything. Passion was also showed by the money man in the boardroom. And um, I think he says, I think his name is Chris, a bit of a Dell boy. And I think I don't think his name was Chris. It was um, Charlie, Charlie um, Methan, who's the uh, the director of Sunderland. Um, anyway, so he says uh, he wanted to see Sunderland win, but his passion was business. For him, it could have been a, about any football team. All he could see were the pound signs. It was interesting to watch the two different versions of passion. Can you or Kartik think of any football documentaries that show a rising from the ashes type of story? Something like Manchester City rising from Division 3 or maybe older stories like Swindon coming up through all four divisions. Maybe Sunderland will win the Champions League in 15 years' time and they will have this documentary to show everyone how far they have come. They will uh, need plenty of passion to get there. Carter, can you think of any uh, Rise to the Ashes documentaries? Documentaries? No, it would have been good to have one of Swansea, obviously. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Uh, Jack to a King, the Swansea story, the one that they showed on NBC over the air network. They got uh, big time ratings. I think over a half a million people watched that one. How soon we forget? No, just I, I mean I, I'm being, I'm being tongue in cheek here, but that that is one I I, I would recommend. Um, yeah, it's on iTunes. You can rent it or buy it, and it uh, I, I'm yeah. a little bit biased on that one though. Yeah, so it would have been good to have like uh, I think a complete series. What I'm saying like the the that's a documentary like the QPR one I mentioned. But it would have been good good to have like um, these different season stanzas. I don't know if if we'll ever quite, you have to get lucky, right? You have to pick the right club. Uh, Bournemouth obviously is another one and, and, and et cetera. But there are, um, I think when you look in, in again, going back to the sixties and seventies in English football, so many more examples of clubs that, that just kind of climbed the ranks and then ended up winning the league or competing for, uh, for trophies. Luton town is one uh, that was 1980s Wimbledon uh, before the epic collapse, right? And then, uh, obviously, uh, QPR, uh, when they first got promoted in the late 60s under Gordon Jago, uh, they they ended up becoming quite an established club for the next 10, 15 years uh, before falling back off. And then we, start, we obviously talked about them earlier in the show coming back up. So there are a number of clubs you could make a documentary like that about. I think now one which would have been interesting to actually document in recent years would have been Aston Villa because it is such a big club, Mm -hmm. but it is a club uh, 
that at times in its history, this isn't the first time in its history they've underachieved historically, right? So they've had the highest of highs, winning a European Cup, uh, beating Bayern Munich in the final. You talk about you, when you want to win a final, you want to win a proper final, right? You don't want to play some team from, from Poland, no offense. You want to play Bayern, Juventus, Real Madrid. Um, and they've had kind of the lowest of lows too so Villa I think would be an interesting club to see a documentary like that about and who knows once the season resumes maybe they get relegated again you have the chance next season to to do a six-part uh documentary on the season they push back for promotion and then maybe do continue it if they get promoted again yeah and and um being as unbiased as possible too I honestly I, I do think that uh, Jack Tua King the Swansea story is well worth watching uh, a club that was um near the bottom of the fourth division uh one game away from getting uh, relegated to or at least relegated to the uh the conference league kind of the non league or at least trying to um trying to stay away from that and then rising up and almost uh, going bankrupt going into the administration actually and having the fans uh pull together the, the money to go ahead and keep the club alive to to be able to pay the players to keep moving forward um uh, and then all the way to the premier league and, and beyond um yeah i i think even if i wasn't a swansea fan i would recommend that one Last but not least, Kartik. Uh, this one came in this morning from Ritik. He says, Hi, Chris and Kartik. How do you view the quality of the late 1990s DC teams that dominated MLS, especially the 1998 squad with the top franchises today, Atlanta United, LAFC, etc.? I think the squad depth of the elite sides now is far better, but DC had a starting 11 which can rival any current MLS teams with players like Echeverri, Moreno, Hawks, Pope, etc. Since this week marks the 25th anniversary of the first MLS match, I was intrigued to know your thoughts on how far the league has improved in quality. And and Kartik, just an aside too, of course, um, a lot of the listeners, yourself included, know that um, I think it was last Monday, um, ESPN2 showed a bunch of uh, classic games. And, and I think MLS2 on their... I guess on their website, I think it is, uh, they've been showing a lot of um, kind of classic games from that period too. So Kartik, in, in hindsight, uh, knowing teams like Atlanta United, LAFC, etc. now, and looking back to these 1998 teams, uh, especially DC United, uh, which ranks better, MLS 1.0 or MLS 3.0? Overall, I guess 3.0. Uh, in terms of just the number of quality sides and number of quality players in the league, it's also a much bigger league. In terms of the the best team in the history of the league, uh, it, it's still, to me, hands down, that D.C. United team. And not only in the history of Major League Soccer, and I know a lot of people get angry when I say this, and we just talked about the New York Cosmos earlier, I think those D.C. United teams were probably as good as the Cosmos teams in the late 70s, early 80s. We'll never know. But um, you mentioned squad depth. I, they were actually deeper than people think, uh, DC United. In fact, there were matches where they had a number of players out or called up into internationals because their whole team was internationals, their whole start first 11. Uh, it, you mentioned uh, Echeverri Moreno, Harks Pope. That's the spine. But they also had uh, guys like Tony Sane, who, uh, Carlos Yamosa, Jeff Agus, who were um, – Fantastic internationals. Jeff Onger at the time was a was a top international for um, for Canada. Raul Diaz Arce, RDA, was the best uh, Salvadoran player. Uh, he and Mauricio Fuegos in a generation, probably the best Salvadoran players of the last thirty or forty years. They had a lot of squad depth, though. You would see guys like. Uh, 
Carrie Talley and, and John Maisner and David Vaudreal and Brian Kamler step in to roles and play really, really well. Uh, I, I think those DC teams were really good. I think they were the best teams in MLS history. I do have to point something out, though, about this. MLS did not really strictly enforce the salary cap until the 99-2000 type C. Oh, and Ben Olsen, when he joined the team in 98. How could I forget him? Um, Didn't um, really enforce uh, the, the salary cap until they started breaking this team up. And once that team got broken up due to the salary cap, and you had Sané move to Germany, Pope go to, to uh, the Metro Stars, Agus go to San Jose, they were just another team, right? So I think it's tough to compare because they were given more latitude in building the team. And in Kevin Payne and Bruce Arena, they had two guys running the club that knew more than, than everybody else probably combined in that league about finding players, where they were, how to build. And then they kept it going with Thomas Rongen, who would be probably third on that list mm-hmm. of people who knew what they were doing in those days when a lot of people in American soccer didn't know what they were doing. They didn't scout well. They So it's tough to compare because I think it's much more difficult now. It's more competitive and it's more difficult now to build a team that, that, that is that good, especially with a dispersed talent pool. I don't think our top American players are as good as they were uh, in that era. I think the top players on DC United, you talk about a guy like Tony Sané, you talk about uh, Harks. A lot of them were in the primes of their careers too. Eddie Pope, uh, arguably the greatest U.S. uh, field player ever, uh, U.S. men's field player ever. You don't get guys like that in the prime of their career anymore uh, who are American, one, playing in MLS, and two, they can't all be on the same team. Um, And then you don't get the – DP level players like Moreno and Echeverry, uh, uh, two of them on the same team <laughs> anymore. Yeah. So I say that team's the best. I think it's it's not really even that close. And let's consider they won CONCACAF. They won the Inter-American uh, Cup uh, here at Lockhart, in our, uh, your former neck of the woods, beating uh, Vasco da Gama. I've made, still probably the greatest victory ever for an MLS club uh, in an international competition. Uh, they won the league three times. They won the U.S. Open Cup a few times during that period. But I don't think you can recreate that team. Um, the closest thing I've seen to it is Atlanta United. And uh, that's probably the Atlanta United team of 2018 would probably, and 2019 uh, under Martino and then DeBoer, uh, obviously they got knocked down the playoffs, but they did well in other competitions, uh, are probably the, is probably the runner-up historically. Yeah. What, what I prefer about MLS 1.0 over MLS 3.0 is the super clubs. So you've got the, yeah. the DC United, so you've got the LA Galaxy, you got Chicago Fire. I mean, you had some really good teams that were I mean, well-drilled, had some really um, fantastic players in their prime playing good soccer. Uh, MLS 3.0 is more of your, other than Atlanta United, which I, I agree with you, I, I'd say 2018 would be the kind of the top there under Martino. 2019, not as much, but you don't have the super clubs as much. And LAFC uh, are inconsistent. Some games they look fantastic, the next game they don't look so good. Uh, I mean, so the quality level isn't there, in, in my opinion, on a consistent basis. And Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, uh, Atlanta United 3.0, yeah, yeah, uh, that's great for MLS 3.0s. You have a good, good team there too, but not a lot of uh, other great quality at a super club level it's very 
to me, parity is not a good thing. Parity makes things boring. I mean, you want to have those super clubs to to kind of have those teams playing great football, but at the same time have those huge upsets where you have a team near the bottom that's be able to knock off the team at the top. That creates a lot of uh, excitement too. So I have a lot of fond memories for MLS 1.0. I mean, there was a lot of... Um, there was a lot of poor games and a lot of players. I mean, Lothar Mateus, especially as one example, uh, mailing it in, coming over for a vacation, really playing MLS and looking horrible, not caring at all. Um, but MLS 3.0 definitely has quality. Just it, it, it's a different type of quality. There's some great quality from South America and Central America playing in the league, but it's spread out a lot more where you have so many more teams and the depth level, the quality level isn't as good because in 1.0 you had fewer teams and that quality level was more concentrated. So listeners, we want you to have your say. If you agree with us, disagree with us, uh, want to have any any questions or recommendations about uh, su- uh, soccer movies or uh, documentaries that you want us to uh, talk about in the next episode, uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can always reach us via email through web at worldsoccertalk.com as well as facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk and on twitter at worldsoccertalk plus you of course you can always post your comments on worldsoccertalk.com Gartic did you want to have, add anything more about the MLS uh, argument? Yeah I was just going to say that I, I think there were plenty of uh, players who came to the NASL in its heyday and mailed it in also and were on holiday but there yeah. were there were many also that weren't that that really took uh soccer to another level and entertained while they were here so there, there was a lot of that in the early days of mls as well as as, as we mentioned and some guys that also were maybe too good for uh, the supporting cast around them I, I think of roberto donadone coming to new york and being surrounded with by a, a team of journeymen level American players and, and Donadone being uh, miles ahead of them mentally. And then just, they couldn't read his movements. They couldn't understand what he was doing. Uh, and he went back to Milan. I think after two seasons it was kind of a frustrated uh, individual here. And uh, just a couple of quick uh, items on uh, World Soccer Talk news is that we have the next episode of the Heart of the Game podcast. It'll be coming out on Monday. This one is with Phil Bonney, the uh, commentator for the Bundesliga and uh, Kartik, I think you will enjoy this one. This one's a really, really insightful uh, interview with him that goes into a lot of detail, a lot of a lot of things I didn't re- didn't realize about him. Him telling his story. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Nate's interview with him. I, uh, in fact, did not know who he was and kept hearing this call from this guy. And I think it was finally uh, Derek Ray or, uh, or or Ian Joy or somebody on Twitter pointed out to me, this is Phil Bonney. You should follow him. Yeah. <laughs> you should pay attention to him because uh, it was the same same guy. And I was saying, well, this guy commentator is really good. I keep hearing him. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Really interesting guy. Very, very animated and, and, and kind of um, intellectual in how he calls a match. So I, I enjoy him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And a lot of listeners, too, will, will definitely, uh, when they hear his voice, will go, OK, that's the guy. And, and he, he tells his story about how he got into Germany. Uh, we also did the interview with uh, Taylor Twelman this past week, too. That's a must listen to. It uh, goes into a lot of the, the politics of U.S. soccer and also the story of, of Taylor's rise as to be one of the best uh, co-commentators uh, on U.S. soil. 
And uh, one more piece of news, and that is with the worldsoccertalk.com website, uh, we're, we're going to be posting schedules uh, every weekend of all the different games and soccer coverage that are on U.S. television. So check that out, too. Oh, and one one quick thing, Chris, and I should have mentioned this earlier in the show, since you mentioned uh, Taylor's interview with uh, with uh, Nate earlier in the week. Also, I checked out this week, and, and I would encourage everybody to find the clip. Uh, Taylor gets to interview his old teammate for Outside the Lines, uh, Marshall Leonard, who is now his old New England Revolution teammate, who is now a doctor on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, inspirational story, and quite honestly, you know, this guy is a hero, and, and he's a longtime MLS player. He played for the Revs for four or five seasons, if I remember correctly. So uh, check that out, Outside the Lines, uh, from earlier in the week. All right. Well, thank you for listening. You can get a new episode of the podcast every Thursday on uh, practically every single uh, iPod uh, or podcast player, in addition to YouTube.com too. If you like the show, share it with your friends on social media and give us a review on iTunes. We greatly appreciate it. And Kartik, heading into another weekend, uh, what should people do? Enjoy your football documentary viewing. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 